Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Simon Critchley, professor of philosophy at the New School for Social Research. And he's here to talk with us about faith. Simon Critchley, welcome. Nice to be here. One sort of notion of faith that a lot of philosophers have is faith is the belief in something even when you don't have overwhelming evidence for it. Now, do you think that's a helpful way to think about faith, or do you think there are problems with it? I don't know. How would you think about forms of faith? I mean, the, give me an example of faith with evidence and without evidence. What sort of thing do you have in mind? So a really stupid example might be mm-hmm. faith that something is an acid because you dipped litmus paper in it and it turned a certain color, I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, versus faith in intelligent design because look at the way the parts of uh, these natural creatures fit together. It has to be the product of design. But maybe the evidence for it isn't overwhelming in the way that it is with, you know, litmus paper because whenever you dip litmus paper in acid, um, <laughs> it turns whatever color it's supposed to turn. Right. And the former is an empirical question that we can resolve or not, right? And the latter is something which, what people presuppose as a framework that's going to make the world intelligible in some way. Yeah. I don't believe in intelligent design, I suppose. I, I find that sort of faith uh, peculiar, I guess. I mean, I think it's... Um, it's the first distinction be to make between faith and knowledge at some level, that faith isn't something... I mean, by definition, it's something distinct from an order of knowledge. So one's faith in the, the composition of the acid is something which is resolvable and empirically it's a knowledge question whereas when we're talking about faith in I don't know, religious terms or I think in ethical terms as well it's of some different order which is in many ways against all the evidence you can believe I mean I personally have faith that human beings are essentially decent the evidence is <laughs> wildly against that. You know, the evidence would seem to point in the other direction. Human beings are, are rather cruel creatures that treat each other badly. But I still have a faith in the capacity for human beings to cooperate together, organize things mutually, achieve forms of solidarity, whatever it might be. So that would be a, a faith which I have or like to have, which would be in many ways against the majority of the evidence. And you could find some evidence to back it up, you know. You could say, well, look, you know, human beings are, for the most part, cruel and nasty, but here's an example where they behaved decently to each other. We'll select that as paradigmatic rather than the opposite. I mean, I guess another example that will come to people's minds is an example like, well, I believe that Jesus died and rose again. Mm-hmm. Not because I have some kind of special historical evidence for that. I mm-hmm. believe it on faith. Mm-hmm. And... The way that this kind of example seems to work out in contemporary discussions is that you have two kind of views. One view is that that kind of faith is a virtue. like It's a good mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. to hold beliefs like that on faith. And the other view takes almost entirely the opposite position. It views that kind of faith as somehow illegitimate. Mm-hmm. So the idea there would be that to believe something against all the evidence or without sufficient evidence is just intellectually irresponsible. Faith mm-hmm. looks like the opposite of intellectual responsibility. You've said yourself that you take at least one thing on faith, but where would you come down on this question of faith as a virtue or faith as intellectual responsibility? Um, it's difficult to generalise, because if you say you know, it, that there are people that believe that Jesus was God, was Lord, was crucified, and was resurrected, and... Um, 
I would say that is a fable. Right? It, it's a fable. It, it's a myth. Um, it's a story. And it's a compelling one which is embedded in certain traditions. Let's just say the, the majority tradition in a country like the United States. It's not a question of whether I'd believe that or not, but what interests me is more what the structure of that faith looks like. You know, so you know, I'm here to talk a little bit about St. Paul, and there's been a renewal of interest in, in Paul in the last 10 years or so because of uh, publication of Heidegger's lectures and different texts have appeared, where people of a more or less atheistic uh, view have found something in Paul. And what they find in Paul is if like a structure of faith, you know, which in his case is directed towards overwhelmingly a belief in the resurrected Christ. The interesting thing about Paul is that he, um, we don't quite know what happened. Right? Paul doesn't talk about his conversion experience. It's recounted in that piece of fiction called The Acts of the Apostles, the Damascus experience. He talks twice about something happening to him that changed him from a persecutor of Jewish Christians and a Roman citizen, very privileged status in, in the Roman world at that time, to be a Jew and a Roman citizen, into something else. But when he has that revelation, he doesn't then go to Jerusalem where the disciples of Christ were still alive. And he could have met with them and tried to find evidence as to whether Jesus turned the water into wine or walked on water or raised the dead. He goes off into the desert. Uh, he describes it as Arabia for a period of time and then comes back 10 years later and then begins to proselytize and build up churches. And he, then he does meet with Peter, you know, the, the rock on which the church was to be built. So the peculiar thing about Paul as an example is you have someone that has an experience of faith in something fabulous, the resurrected Christ, but he doesn't seek historical evidence for it. And furthermore, you could say he doesn't really... It, it's something which is promised in the Old Testament that there would be a Messiah, but that isn't really overwhelming evidence either. I mean, so the, the, the evidence for the existence of, of Jesus isn't given by prophecy. That's not going to do it either. So prophecy isn't going to do it. Empirical knowledge isn't going to do it. One of the polemics in Paul is with the people he calls the Greeks, including philosophers. And for him, a philosopher was someone with someone who made a claim to knowledge about the whole. And you know, we can think about that in relationship to, say, the pre-Socratics. The whole is ordered according to the principle of water or fire in Thales or Heraclitus. So the Greeks claim to know, and then they can derive things from that. And when Paul went to Athens to preach to them, he was laughed at. You know, <laughs> what you're saying is ludicrous. Neither is he seeking the, if you like, epistemic, evidential undergirding of Judaism with its own idea of prophetic evidence. So whatever faith means for Paul is something in excess of those forms of evidence. And that's what's interesting. So it's a faith in something that exceeds the evidence, and the evidence in a sense doesn't really interest Paul. But it's a faith which enables him to act in a certain way in the world. And I guess that's what's interesting. So Paul's belief was in something fabulous, the resurrected Christ. I don't believe that. But the structure of faith that Paul's work reveals is something that can tell us can enable us to think about how we might act in the world in relationship to real situations and intervene in them. And the return to Paul, I mean, the return to Paul in the history of Christianity has always been a return to something like the, the authority of faith. You know, the Reformation is that. You know, people always get wrong about the history of the, of the Christian church. Is it, you know, it's the Catholics that were on the side of reason, right? And the idea in Aquinas or whatever that we can unify 
the revelation of faith with the work of rationality, as it's given to us through the Greek philosophers, Aristotle overwhelmingly. Luther's just rejects that. Faith is justified by itself alone. Faith and faith alone. And it's that that interests me, I guess, that structure that interests me. So you've talked about faith, particularly in relation to Paul, as a kind of response to a call. I wonder if you could say something about that. So it seems like from what you've written there, Paul's faith, his expression of faith, Mm -hmm. is of a fundamentally different kind Mm -hmm. from our expressions of beliefs Mm -hmm. about historical events or Mm -hmm. something that's in front of me on the table. So maybe you could say something about that. What does it mean to say that faith is a response to a call? I mean, again, it's not clear, but I mean, Romans begins with these weird words. Paul, first thing, he changes his name, right? And people always get that wrong. Why does he change his name? People normally think that he's rejecting his Jewish identity and claiming some new superior identity. Whereas the opposite is the case. As Saul, he was um, a Hebrew born of Hebrews under the law, blameless, and a Roman citizen. So Paul had a place in the world. Uh, Saul had a place in the world. When he becomes Paul, he becomes something placeless, something, something diminutive, something of irrelevant. And that's the way he describes his constituency, the constituency of those people. He doesn't use the word Christian or Christianity, those people that he calls, he says, are in Christ. And by in Christ, he seems to mean a small political community that could basically gather around a table. Those people have no place in the world. They have no place under Roman law. They have no place under Jewish law. This is where it gets interesting, as we see that, that Paul presages forms of, say, political radicalism that, that we find, say, in, in forms of Marxism and anarchism and all the rest, where a small group will form in opposition to the existing state of the situation, the prevailing order of law and all the rest. So Paul becomes the slave of the Messiah who was called, right, called. Now, we don't know what that call was, but we think it's somehow bound up with the resurrected Christ. Again, that is a fable, but what it reveals for me is something about the formation of a self in relationship to a call or what I prefer to call a demand, an ethical demand. I've got this whole theory about what I call ethical experience, which is, you know, theories of morality are all very nice and we have different theories of morality that we discuss in philosophy. But at the core of any moral view of the world has to be an experience of commitment uh, and a commitment to some sort of call or some sort of demand. And again, that, that interests me greatly because it's that call or that demand that's going to motivate a self to act in a certain way and I begin from in another book I wrote I begin from the hypothesis that there is a motivational deficit in liberal democracy that citizens many citizens experience the institutions habits and practices of liberal democracy as radically demotivating what's called democratic deficit in some patterns of, say, diminished voting behaviour in some societies. So there seems to be a, a, a sort of a motivational problem. So the question for me is, how is it that selves get motivated to act morally in certain ways? And again, Paul is exemplary of someone who has no motivational problem. Right? He acts in the world. And he acts in the world in relationship to this thing that he's calling a call which he gives this supernatural significance to, but we needn't assign that supernatural significance to it, right? 
you know, and this is where I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of religion in philosophical discourse and scientific discourse, which is that the, the, the religion stands or falls on whether its supernatural claims can be proved or not. You know, was God there before the Big Bang or whatever? I mean, he says, who cares? I, I certainly don't. I think it's the wrong way to look, the wrong place to look. What interests me more about religion is not whether people believed or not in certain supernatural entities. What interests me more is the way such a belief can lead them to act in the world. And there's, there are certain traditions of religious thought which would say, you know, it, belief in the existence or inexistence of God is neither here nor there. What matters is how you act in relationship to the neighbour, say, right? Uh, I remember having a, uh, listening to a debate with the great philosopher Alistair MacIntyre years and years ago, and he was debating with some theologians as to whether the, uh, the ethical demand at the core of uh, what it means to be a moral self derived from a divine command or not. And the theologians were saying, yeah, it has to flow from some divine command. You know, God orders the world in such a way. We believe that these uh, truths are revealed in Scripture, and that's why the demand has force. And McIntyre said, no, it's, it's neither here nor there. It doesn't matter whether these things are true or not. What matters is how you, you act. So to that extent, whether one is a theist or an atheist is neither here nor there. It's a question of how one comports oneself ethically in the world. And that's what interests me, I guess. So maybe we could get back to the example you mentioned earlier about Paul believing in the resurrection of Christ, things like that, and things like belief in a calling. So you mentioned that even for someone who themselves doesn't believe in these things, maybe you're an atheist, maybe they sound spooky, whatever, mm-hmm. even for someone who doesn't believe in those things, the example can be of interest in everyday life situations. Yeah, what interests I me, mean, a, a thing that's interested me for a, a good while is uh, the old category of commitment. How do we actually become committed? What sort of thing is commitment? And I guess, you know, I got into philosophy through existentialism, you know, an awful long time ago. And what interested me most about the existentialists was this idea of commitment. And that seems to have drifted out of discussions. I want to sort of bring that back. And it's um, something that um, religion could instruct us about it. Here we have people who are (laughs) maybe too committed, overly committed. So it seemed to me that earlier on you made a fairly strong claim about this kind of commitment, mm-hmm. which is that it's really necessary. It's not just that we can separate this set of people who we're going to call religious and mm-hmm. they base their ethical and religious lives on, on a certain kind of faith, a kind of mm-hmm. commitment that's not grounded in the normal standards of mm-hmm. evidence or justification. But that's just this small set of people. Yeah. It seemed like when you were talking about faith is something they have right faith is something they have have. what we have the standard response would be is reason Mm -hmm. so i feel like i want to press you on this Mm -hmm. someone might respond to your claim that this kind of commitment is necessary by simply denying that that's true in that case so they don't subscribe to what Matt called spooky religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. They really don't think that they take anything without the appropriate kind of evidence or justification. So they would deny, I guess, both that some kind of faith, some kind of ungrounded commitment is necessary for moral life, mm-hmm. and indeed that it's at all desirable. They might want to say, well, now that's the bad kind of moral life. That's the kind of moral life, the kind of religion that we've been gradually struggling to get ourselves out of since mm-hmm. the Enlightenment. How would you respond to a, a criticism like that? Um, 
I think that, for example, people that I describe as sort of evangelical atheists like Dawkins and uh, Hitchens have an equally strong faith in their position. A strong faith is underwritten what, by what they see as you know, the empirical truth of things and so, by a certain conception of history. History is the unfolding of a, the truths of evolution or whatever. The perspective that begins from reason is not isolated from questions of faith. One can have a faith in reason, right? Uh, I can have a faith that... I will trust and have faith that scientists will work in an appropriate way and work out the truths about the nature of life and the universe and everything without being able to participate myself. So that's a sort of faith. But to go back to the spooky side of it, I mean, the, um, if we take a concrete example, and it's a, a strange example, um, the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, this character called Jesus, who some people believe is God and some people don't, makes a series of demands. He says, you know, you've heard, and he's quoting Leviticus, let's say, that you should love your neighbour and hate your enemy, let's say. But I say unto you, you know, you should love your enemies. You should love those who, who persecute you, love those even who would undermine you, seek to destroy you. And then he finishes by saying, be as unto he who made you. Be godlike, if you like. Now, this is a bizarre thing to say. And also you find things like this, where he's asked, how many times should someone forgive? Seven times? He says, no, no, seven times seven, or 70 times seven. The capacity of forgiveness is, has to be infinite. Now, you can believe that this person, Jesus Christ, made these demands, was entitled to make these demands because he was God. You can also believe that there's no evidence for that, there's no need to believe that. He was just some crazy rabbi in first century occupied Palestine who was just making extraordinary demands. And he was making extraordinary demands in order to, um, if you like, prick people's conscience in such a way that would get them to intervene and act. So I guess I'm a defender of strong forms of commitment. Right? I think there's a tendency in different aspects of a public life and intellectual life for a sort of a cool disinterested sort of spectator position on issues of morality. I think that there's a problem of that drifting into forms of what I would call passive nihilism, where, you know, in a sense, you're in a position of knowledge, you know the way things are, uh, human beings. It's an expression of a certain moral superiority and distance from that. And I guess what I take from the, um, the different monotheistic traditions is the sort of austerity of commitments. I'm very interested in that as something which can be deployed by non-religious people in a way in which can become dangerous, sure. It can become extreme in certain instances, but the, the absence of that uh, has even worse dangers in my view. So in other words, there's a sort of analogy between taking something on faith, like the resurrection of Christ or the fact that you have a calling, um, there's an analogy between that and undertaking a commitment to some ethical principle, perhaps, like yeah. loving your neighbor. And we can learn something about what it is to undertake ethical commitments by attending to examples of religious faith. Yeah, and that can be evidenced in all sorts of you know, incredibly uh, small-scale ways, right? You know, you're in a city like New York or something, and uh, in, in a poor part of the city, and there is an adequate health care, right? And all the evidence explains why that's not the case, the disproportionate inequalities of, of, uh, 
urban life, lack of resources, impoverished people that aren't politically represented. And against that evidence, some committed, well-meaning people might set up, say, a health clinic in an impoverished neighbourhood. That's, as it were, faith against evidence, right? So it's the way in which, um, I mean, for me, reason and rationality can't be divorced from processes like the bureaucratization of society and the rest. So I've got this, I mean, rationality is can be a beautiful thing <laughs> but can also be a monster that one needs to confront because it's in the name of rationality all sorts of things can become impossible right? so um, that'd be one way of thinking about it yeah. so you've described yourself as as a supporter of or an advocate of commitment in, yeah. in moral life someone might say well alright but you're not an advocate of just any commitment in moral mm-hmm. life there yes. has to be yes. some kind of means for choosing the commitments one takes up and then it seems like there has to be some kind of sense in which some commitments can be better than others yes or- there were very committed Nazis say or very com- yeah sure I mean it, it, there has to be I mean there are, there are a number of elements here I mean firstly that the moral life and action is something that takes place somewhere in a locality for me it's not an abstract affair it's something which takes place in where, where, where you live and work and there's an issue here that you raise about well how do we assess different forms of commitment we need some other element there were lots of very committed fascists and, and nazis but we'd say that what they're committed to is the life of a certain people at the expense of the life of other people and actually you know, would cause the inexistence of certain people's genocide and the Holocaust and all the rest. This is where, you know, I would want to introduce an important qualification and say, well, yeah, commitment has to be a commitment with an element of generality or what philosophers call universality. There has to be a clause which says commitment, but commitment in principle for all. And let me try and give an example of that. There's a, in France, there is a, a situation of workers without papers they're called the sans papier here in the united states illegal immigrants there are certain people who've been trying to organize politically around a very specific group we're talking about specific illegal immigrants in they're called atelier in french or shelters usually from certain areas of west africa overwhelmingly from like mali who are not entitled to the privileges of usual french citizens and are threatened with the possibility of expulsion from that country. Okay, then what you might do in that context, you, you say, well, you know, what does it mean to live in France? To live in France means to be a subject or a self who is entitled to certain universally recognized principles, fraternity, equality, What's the third one? Liberty. That's <laughs> the one I always forget, right? Fraternity, equality, and liberty. And so you can say, well, look, you know, by looking at those principles, found our republic. How can you be committed to an idea of equality, fraternity, and all the rest, and these people are treated unequally, treated in a less than human way? So you can then begin to organize a, a political movement that would have a, a radically local character dealing with a specific constituency but be making an appeal to a certain universal set of terms and i think that's the for me legitimate struggles have that character i guess so there has to be you know to put that in you know, in more philosophical terms there has to be a sort of a kantian moment some sort of categorical imperative at some point that was actually the reference that i was going to make so this, oh, yeah. this does sound like the moment in Kant where 
he says something of the form, to put it in your words, any kind of commitment that you're going to take up must be a commitment not just for you, but for any, yes. he would say, rational yes. human being. Mm-hmm. And that takes on different forms in Kant. We have, you know, at least three forms. On the one hand, you know, only act on a, on a maxim that you can will to be a universal law. Only act on a maxim that you could will in what he calls a kingdom of ends, let's say some ideal political organization of society. And thirdly, a maxim that doesn't treat the other human being as a means to an end, but as an end in themselves. And it's that third one that interests me most. It's the passage from, as it were, our concrete responsibilities towards others in a lived context, and that as being articulated in relationship to a certain notion of the general or the universal. Because the problem that Kant faced, which he recognised, was that the, the moral law was all very well. Having a universalistic ethics was all very well. But unless human beings would be motivated to act on such a law, it just remained abstract. Right? And this was Hegel's critique of, of Kant. So how do we combine that element of universality with the interest to act on that? And Kant thought that was a question finally of practical faith. A practical faith which was religious within the limits of reason alone, but still religious. And uh, you know, my position is not a million miles away from that. So we've been talking about various analogies between religious faith and moral issues. Do you think it's reasonable to make a comparison between religious faith and maybe certain other kinds of faith? Um, maybe to take another banal example, like faith that my spouse isn't cheating on me or something, or faith in my friends. It's a difficult one. I mean, I think of um, Othello here. Right? Othello, uh, what is the tragedy of Othello? Othello suffers from jealousy. He doesn't know whether Desdemona has been unfaithful to him, but he can't bear not knowing. And because he can't bear not knowing, he eventually murders her. It's a crude summary of the plot. <laughs> so what, uh, what Othello can't bear about the person he's in love with is the fact that he doesn't know ultimately whether she's faithful or not. I think love is like that. Love is about an experience of trust where you simply do not know. If you did know then you'd be robbing that person of their humanity. You know, it's, it's, I think, and to, to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, I mean, think about um, Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer. You know, he didn't have much company, wasn't loved or whatever. What he wants to do was to, as it were, put human beings into some sort of comatose state that wasn't conscious but wasn't dead, and he felt he could sort of love them in some way, right? That's love as knowledge, and that's sick, Right? So when it comes to love of one's spouse, there has to be that element of trust, which is simply a leap of faith of a kind, and, and you don't know. Friendships, I think friendship's more difficult, and I guess um, there are at least two dominant views in the history of friendship, one being the Greek model, one being the Christian model. And I, I don't know, I think both have attractions. I mean, for Aristotle, I mean, next to the contemplative life that philosophy can afford, friendship is, is of huge importance, right? But friendship for Aristotle is limited to that few number of friends that one can count on, and it's a reciprocal relation, right? It's a relation of trust amongst a small number. And then we have the Christian account of friendship, which is to say, well, actually the Christian shouldn't have any friends in particular, but should love everyone through the eternal, through God. The argument, say, like Kierkegaard has, or Augustine had. Augustine feels guilty when his friend dies, not because 
his friend's dead, but because he feels too much for his friend, right? And um, he's feeling too much for a particular. So I think that there's an issue here in friendship of, of number, of, you know. And I think both views have attractions. But you've also got to trust your friends, right? There has to be an element of, you know, an unknown element in the friendship relationship, which is essential. So I'd like to go back to one thing you mentioned earlier, which was a kind of political application of this mm-hmm. point. So you mentioned this problem of motivation yeah. in liberal democracies. Yeah. Now, one might wonder where you wanted to go with that. So mm-hmm. the, the point seems to be that a liberal democracy prides itself on not requiring this deep kind of faith-based commitment. It's, it Separation of the public and the private. Separation mm-hmm. of the public and private. It considers itself neutral based on reasons that everyone could accept and these are the ideals that are the ideals of the liberal society Mm -hmm. now your mention of this problem of motivation suggests that where you want to go is to say that our political systems should be based on something more like faith that there should be some kind of deeper notion of commitment at the base of them Mm mm-hmm Clearly, that's an idea that some people will find disturbing, but I wondered if you could expand on it. Is that the kind of view that you want? And well, if so, how does it work? I mean, I was reading the other day, a couple of days ago, there's this book that just came out in English where Jürgen Habermas, the great German philosopher, is debating with um, Jesuit philosophers in, in Munich, and it's called An Awareness of What is Missing. Habermas wants to affirm a neutral liberal state governed by reason, which he thinks is based upon general norms which can be validated but he recognizes as well there's a motivational problem here that just doesn't do the work and there's something missing namely a recognition of the dimension of of faith so he wouldn't want to organize society on the basis of faith but if you organize society on the basis of a neutral liberal idea of, of reason and law there's going to be this deficit now we can say well that deficit is just fine we just accept the division between the public and the private which is the way someone like Richard Rorty goes, which is to say we can be a, a liberal in one sphere and then you can read Proust and Nabokov at home and the two things don't have to link up. I have problems with that. I don't want to base... I mean, my personal political views are rather extreme. You know, the, the, I think that the motivational deficit in liberal democracy opens up the possibility for new forms of political engagement at a distance from the liberal state and which can be organised in different ways. I mean, the political tradition that most interests me is is anarchism. And uh, anarchism, contrary to popular belief, is not about disorder, it's about other forms of order which are based upon forms of local autonomy. So the anarchist vision of uh, society would be one where society is rooted in a social bond and in values like mutuality, cooperation and solidarity, universal terms but which have to be lived at a local level. And so I see the state as um, a limitation on human existence. And so therefore that motivational deficit, I think, is something which can open up new forms of political engagement. And, and I think, furthermore, that's possibly what we're witnessing at the moment if we look at, say, a concrete context, like what's happening in Greece, where there's a, a stark conflict between the state which is trying to force through a budget which is being dictated by the eu at the behest of international finance capital and investment and uh, and people right, who are objecting to that why should we pay 
for this? Why should we suffer when it wasn't our fault? And so what you see in that concrete situation is you know, one possibility where the realm of the state and the realm of something like civil society and social life can begin to fall apart. I don't see that as a threat of disorder. I see that as the possibility of new forms of organization, new forms of order. In a, in a peculiar way, I, I welcome the, the motivational deficit in liberal democracy because it opens up new forms of thinking about politics. Okay, and with that toast to new forms of order, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us both, Simon Critchley. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.